Thank you for checking out the sermon at Hope Church. We exist to connect people to live the life of a Jesus follower. We're excited that you came across this message and are tuning in. We just want to make you aware of a couple things before we get to the sermon. First, we'd love to connect with you. You can follow us on our social networks by searching at Hope Church LV. Also, be sure to check out our website, hopechurchonline.com. There, you have access to other resources, information about who we are, and where we're going as a church, as well as an opportunity to give to what God is doing through our church. Once again, thanks for checking out this sermon. Please let us know if there's any questions you have or any way we can come alongside you and your family. Enjoy the message. There is no power like that of prevailing prayer. I would rather teach one man to pray than ten men to preach. Revival is falling in love with Jesus all over again. Above the incessant noise of human activity, we have heard the sound of marching that tells us God is on the move. Many people express an interest in revival. There are not so many deeply concerned about it, and fewer still burdened for it, still fewer heartbroken for it. Spiritual revival is not an alternative for the nations right now. It is the imperative. To be broken is the beginning of revival. It is painful, it is humiliating, but it is the only way. Revival is the extraordinary movement of the Spirit of God in the hearts of God's people, producing extraordinary results. Prayer is the indispensable condition of promoting revival. If we are content to live without revival, we will. In 1857, there was a young businessman in New York City named Jeremiah Lanfear. And Jeremiah Lanfear had developed a burden over the spiritual condition of his day. He was so burdened over society and the world around him that he found himself one afternoon in 1857 in the back room of a Dutch Reformed church in New York City on his knees, weeping before God. And the cry of his heart was simply this, Lord, what will you have me to do? And in that broken prayer meeting where he was just alone with God, God birthed in his heart an idea. God put it on the heart of Jeremiah Lanfear to begin a weekly businessman's prayer meeting. He decided that he would invite men and women to come at noon on Wednesday. And for an hour, they would simply pray with a burden over the spiritual condition 
of the world in which they lived. And he was so excited about this idea that God had put in his heart, he printed up hundreds of flyers and brochures that advertised the date and the time and the place. And and simply on the brochure, it said, Come when you can, leave when you must. And he passed out hundreds of these brochures. And on September the 23rd, that Wednesday at noon, 1857, with all the excitement and anticipation that had grown in his heart, Jeremiah Lanfear went to that little room in that building that adjoined that little Dutch Reformed church. And as he walked into that room just before noon with all the excitement about what God was going to do, when the clock struck noon, Jeremiah Lanfear was in that room all by himself. I hate to say it, but oh me of little faith and maybe oh you of little faith, at that moment we would have probably decided maybe we didn't hear from God after all and we need to cancel this and do something else. But Jeremiah Lanfear was so certain that God had spoken that he knelt down by himself and he began to pray in that little room. Five minutes, ten minutes. Half an hour all by himself. And about a half an hour into that hour-long prayer meeting, he heard someone coming up the steps to join him there in that room and began to pray with him. Ten minutes later, another. Five minutes later, another. By the end of the hour, they had a whopping grand total of six people in that room praying for God to move. And again, I'm ashamed to admit it, but that would have probably been enough for me to say, well, this has been great. Uh, Let's go back to the drawing board and do something else. But not Jeremiah Lamphere. Came back the next week, and there were 20. By week three, there were 40 men and women gathering in that room, in that building, crying out to God for an awakening in their city. By January of 1858, three months later, they were having to meet simultaneously on three different floors of the same building to contain all the people who were gathering to cry out to God for a movement. By March, six months later, 6,000 people were gathering every day in New York City to cry out to God. But it didn't stop there. There were also now 6,000 gathering in Pittsburgh, 2,000 gathering in Chicago, 4,000 in Philadelphia. Meetings were being held in Washington, D.C., Baltimore, Cincinnati, New Orleans, and now all the way down to Mobile, Alabama. By May of 1858, 50,000 people had trusted Jesus Christ as personal Lord and Savior in New York City alone. A newspaper in New England reported the headline that there were several entire towns in New England states where every single person that was over the age of 18 had come to know Jesus Christ in those towns and been born again into relationship with God. Whole cities were coming to faith in Jesus Christ. It was estimated that for a period of three or four months, 50,000 people a week were accepting Jesus Christ across the United States of America. And by early 1859, 18 months from that very first prayer gathering where Jeremiah Lanfear was all by himself, 
The United States of America at the time had a population of about 30 million people. And historians and scholars estimate that over 1 million people in the United States of America had been born again into relationship with God in those 18 months. Why do I share that story? Why is it so significant? Here's why it's so significant. 1857 to 1859 is the last undeniable sweeping movement of God that has happened across the United States of America. 157 years since we've seen God move in our nation like that. That began being called the Fulton Street Revival because of where that building sat in New York City. But it ultimately became known in the history books as the Third Great Awakening. There have been some movements of God that that some people wanted to put on par with that, but historians and scholars don't agree on any of those. The last real move of God that we can undeniably, everybody would say, God moved coast to coast across America. 1857 to 1859. J. Edwin Orr, great writer and author and speaker on the subject of revival and great awakening. Listen to what he said. No great spiritual awakening has begun anywhere in the world apart from united prayer. Christians persistently praying for revival. I cannot speak for you tonight. I don't know what you come in here with on your heart. But for the last several months, really going back to the first quarter of 2014, God has been doing something in my heart. And God has created in me a hunger and a longing for a fresh move of God. I want it to start in my life. A lot of you know that for the last few weeks I have battled some health issues in my life. And you need to know, I am grateful. When Teddy said to shout out one of those things you're grateful for, that's one of the things I shouted out. Because listen, David said in Psalm 73, it is good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. Over the last few weeks of my life, God's brought me to a place of real desperation in some areas just that I'd taken for granted. And it's brought me to a place where I I want to see God move. Whatever the cost... Whatever we have to give up, whatever the sacrifice is required, no boundaries, no parameters are we putting on it. God, we long to see you move. I want to see him move in my life. Listen, I want to see him move in my family. I want my kids. I've read about in history books, and I've read about in this book called the Bible, great movements of God. But I want to tell you something. I want my kids to see God move. I've not seen a movement like that. 
Let me tell you something. When your kids see that and they taste a move of God, there may be temptations and things that come along the way, but once you've tasted a move of God, you'll be back. Nothing will satisfy the soul like a move of God. I want to see God move in our church. I want God to move here so that people who live in this city, they don't say, oh, you want to hear a great song? Go to Hope. Oh, you want to hear a great sermon? Oh, you go to Hope. No, I want them to say, you need to meet God. You need God. Let me tell you, I know where God's going to be on Sunday. When those people get together, God shows up. God moves in supernatural, unexplainable ways. I want to see God move in our city. Listen, it's bigger than our church. I want God to move in churches all over this valley. Wouldn't it be just like God to do something in Las Vegas so that it happened in churches all over the valley? No church could take credit. All we'd have to do is sit back and say, man, God's doing something. And wouldn't it be just like God to do it in Las Vegas? You know what they said about Jesus? Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? What do they call us? Sin City, right? If you were going to pick a least likely place for a move of God. Listen, if it happened here, what happens in Vegas wouldn't stay in Vegas anymore, right? God would begin a move here. I want God to move in our nation. When I look at our world, we're in the need. We're, We're in need for a fresh move of God. I mean, just read the headlines. Racial tension. Like, I don't think we've witnessed in several decades is breaking out in cities all across our country. Economic instability in global, on a global scale. A moral collapse that is happening right in front of our eyes. There's violence and wars and rumors of wars. And listen to me. It is time that we as followers of Jesus Christ stop talking about politics and political movements and start getting broken over the hurt and pain of a world without God. Listen to me. Politics is not the answer. The answer is not coming out of Washington, D.C. I don't care which side of the aisle you find yourself on. Our answer is not in legislation. Our answer is not in electing a new leader. Our answer, our only hope, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because when the gospel of Jesus Christ takes over a city, let me tell you what happens. It changes people from the inside out. I mean, just look around you. Look at all the diversity sitting in this room, racially, culturally, socioeconomically, over 43 different languages spoken in our fellowship. And yet the ground is level at the foot of the cross. One of my good preacher friends is a guy named K. Marshall Williams. He pastors an African-American church in inner city Camden, New Jersey. It's a suburb, or not a suburb, but it's the inner city of Philadelphia. And he said something that was so profound. He said, Vance, we don't have a skin problem in America. We have a sin problem. 
And if we'll deal with the sin problem through the power of the gospel, the skin problem will take care of itself. And that's the real issue in our culture. We have ills and we have wickedness in our society. But the answer is not in a political party. The answer is in the glorious gospel of Jesus. Listen, oh, that we would get the heart of the prophet Isaiah when Isaiah said, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down that the mountains might quake at your presence. Listen, what if God so moved in Las Vegas that the very foundations of our city shook at the presence and the outpouring of the Spirit of God? And let me give you the good news. God desires to move through His people. Say amen. Listen, we're not just talking about something that's pie in the sky by and by. We're not talking about just some theory today. God desires to move through His people. So when we cry out for this, when we set our heart on it, we're setting our heart on that which the heart of God is set on. In the opening pages of the book of Acts, we read about a move of God like this. If you have your Bible, you can go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 1. Let me tell you what we're going to do for the next three weekends. We're going to take about a 30,000 foot view of a few chapters here in the opening pages of the book of Acts. And we're going to look for some characteristics. Some characteristics that we see in this great move of God. And we're going to try to align ourselves in obedience with these characteristics we see. Not that we can manipulate God to move, but let me tell you what we can do. We can be ready if God chooses to move. I don't want to miss it if God chooses to move. So we're going to look at some verses tonight and we're going to begin to to unpack principle number one. And here's the first principle we're going to deal with. When God moves, His people get desperate. Let me set up what we're about to read. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus has already lived his 33 years on earth, his three and a half years of public ministry. He's already died on the cross, been buried, rose from the dead. For 40 days, he's been appearing to his disciples. And we pick it up in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, as he speaks to his disciples. Listen what he said. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You You know what he just said? I'm about to move. I'm about to do something. He's not here saying that you're about to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. They'd already been indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God at the moment of conversion. That's what salvation is. The Spirit of God coming to live within us, bringing new life. That is salvation. What he's describing here is that God, by the Holy Spirit, for the first time in human history, was about to empower his body, the local New Testament church, for accomplishing the very mission that Christ came to accomplish. He said, I am about to move. But look what he says next. And you shall be my witnesses. Here's what he said. God said, I'm about to move. But I'm not going to move around you. I'm going to move through you. Power, my power, the Holy Spirit of God. I'm about to move. But I'm going to move. Through you. Look what he says. And you'll be my witnesses both in 
Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. Now skip down to verse number 12. Let's read on what he says here in verse 12. He says, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered the city, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. That is Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. These all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. I want to show you tonight two aspects or two characteristics of their desperation that we see in these verses. We'll be done. Number one, there was an attitude of desperation. And I say it this way. They had a passion for God to move. There was an attitude of desperation. Did you hear it in verse 14? There is a radical statement about these believers. There's about 120 of them, if we read on in the chapter, that had gathered in this upper room. And listen to what it says about them. Look at verse 14. These all with one mind. The word all there is a word that means simply that. It means all. It means the totality. Every single one of them. All of them had one mind. The word mind here is a Greek word that means mind or will or passion. And what the Bible is saying here about this group of people is they had all together, every single one of them, heard God speak. They'd heard God say, I'm about to move and I'm going to move through you. And every one of them to a person had wrapped their hearts around it. Let me give you a testimony. I've never been a part of a church that you could say that about. Every single person had wrapped their hearts around a move of Almighty God. I've been in churches where we have passion. The problem is we're all passionate about something different. One person's passionate about this particular program or ministry. Somebody else is passionate about this particular style or area of ministry. Somebody else is passionate about reaching this particular group of people. Somebody else is passionate about reaching out to this particular segment of society. And you see, when we all have different passion, instead of what happened here being united, it divides us and pulls us apart. Here's what the Bible says about these people. They'd come together and said, I don't care what I have to sacrifice. I don't care what I have to give up. I don't care what preferences I have to lay on the table. I don't care what I have to yield. I don't care what God has to do in me. God said he's going to move. God said he wants to move through us. I'm in. Whatever it takes, I'm in. The sad reality is that the American, in the American church, we are so content with our comfortable lives and our creative, contemporary, make-me-feel-better worship experiences that we have no attitude of desperation. There is no passion to see God move in our lives, our churches, our society, and our world. Let me ask you something. You got an attitude of desperation? Are you begging God to move? 
Is there a passion? Have you wrapped your, whatever it takes? You see, the sad reality in the American church is we can go on and do church whether God shows up or not. We got it so down to a system and a structure and an order that we can do our thing for weeks and weeks and weeks and we might not even notice if God doesn't show up. Not these people. And man, God's been dealing with me about this. It started, I told you, in the first quarter of last year. I was reading this book, and it's a book that we're actually making available. We, I think we almost sold out this morning. We only have a few copies left here, tangible. We'll have some more by the middle of this week, and you can buy it online. But it's by Jim Simbala, the pastor of the great Brooklyn Tabernacle in Brooklyn, New York. And Jim pastors a wonderful church that has a heart for God. And it's a book called Spirit Rising, Tapping into the Power of the Holy Spirit. And I was reading it early this year, and, and, and here's a quote out of this book that I, I think will resonate with you. Listen to what he said. I sometimes wonder if the early Christians were around today, would they even recognize what we call Christianity? Our version is blander, almost totally intellectual in nature, and devoid of the Holy Spirit power the early church regularly experienced. How much loss do we suffer? Because we don't expect the Spirit to show up as promised. Everything we read about the church in the New Testament centered on the power of the Holy Spirit working in the hearts of Christian believers. Sadly, for many of us, this has not been our experience. I believe it's time to return to the kind of faith we see in the New Testament church. They believed in Christ's Word. They expected the Spirit to do great things. And He came through as promised. He will do the same for us today. They had a passion for God to move. God, in my personal devotional time in October, I was reading in a gospel of Mark, and I came across in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, and here's what it said in those verses. It was heard that Jesus was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no longer room, not even near the door. Here's what happened. Jesus showed up. Guess what happened when Jesus showed up? Everybody else showed up. And I read that, and I wrote this in my journal. What draws people today is the same thing that has always drawn people. The presence of Jesus and the power of His Word. Unfortunately, we have settled today for many a substitute or cheap counterfeit for His presence and His Word. We attempt to use creativity, sensuality, theology, methodology, felt need, manipulation, and so much more when all we really need is the presence of Jesus and the power of His Word. When the people in my church know that the presence of Jesus and the power of His Word will be manifest on Sunday, no coercion is needed to secure their presence, and they will bring other people with them. Hey, what if I said to you, by the way, next Sunday, Jesus is going to be here. <laughs> Whatever you had planned, you just canceled, right? Hey, listen to me. He is going to be here. He's here right now. The presence of God is here with us. When we gather together, He promises a unique manifestation of His presence. Here's the problem. We don't show up expecting God to move. I wrote this. When the community in which I live, which so desperately needs the presence of Jesus and His Word, discovered that it's manifest in our church, nothing can keep them away. 
The soul longs for the presence of Jesus and the power of his word. And when those things fill a church, so will the souls with that longing. Do we have a passion for God? Is there an attitude that says, God, if you don't show up, we have nothing? Not only did they have an attitude of desperation, here's the second thing, and I'll wrap up with this. There was an act of desperation. And I say that this way. They prayed for God to move. They didn't just have a passion for it. It said they were with one mind, but then it said they were continually devoting themselves to prayer. Because they had a passion for God to move, they then acted on that passion, and they began to cry out for God to move. These people Prayed. You see, prayer expresses our total desperation for God. Let me prove it to you. When do you pray the most? When you get the most desperate, right? Let everything in your life be smooth sailing and you might be tempted to not pray. But let the doctor call you tomorrow and say, you got a disease and there's nothing I can do. You've got six weeks to live. Let me tell you what you just became. You just became a prayer warrior. Why? Because you just got desperate. Did you pray for your job this week? Maybe, maybe not. But if you go tomorrow and get a pink slip, let me tell you what you're praying for this week. Your job. Why? Because you just got desperate. Prayer is motivated by a sense of desperation for God. These people we're reading about, They were desperate. Did you hear what he just said in verse 8? He said, I'm about to move. And here's how I'm about to move. I'm about to move through you. And he said, when I move through you, here's what it's going to look like. It's going to start in Jerusalem. Now, you do realize Jerusalem, these people were terrified to go back to Jerusalem. They knew that they could be persecuted, even put to death. They just witnessed Jesus Christ himself put to death in the streets of Jerusalem. They'd watched him beaten within an inch of his life. The last place they wanted to go was Jerusalem, and yet Jesus said, I'm about to move, and I'm going to move through you. And here's where it's going to start, Jerusalem. And if that's not bad enough, he said, then it's going to go to Judea and Samaria. In Jerusalem, they were hated, but then they themselves hated the Samaritans. If you study biblical history, the Jews called Samaritans the dogs. They they hated the Samaritans. And God said, it's not only going to deal with the issues of persecution in your life. It's going to deal with racial and cultural reconciliation in your life. God was stretching them. I mean, this was a big thing. And then God said, as if all that's not enough, it's going to work through you to go to places in the world that you don't even know today exist. And you've got to remember, this is before airplanes and cell phones and Twitter and Instagram and social media and email. They didn't have all that. And God said, I'm about to move. I'm going to move through you. It's going to be messy. And then look what happened next. I skipped over it a minute ago, but I'm going to read it now. Verses 9 through 11 to me are some of the funniest verses in all the Bible. Look at verse 9. Jesus, if you will, throws this grenade in the middle of the room... And then he says, look at verse 9. 
After he had said these things, what things? I'm about to move. I'm going to do it through you. It's going to be Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. After he said this, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. You didn't get it. You'd have laughed. Here's what it says. Jesus says, I'm about to move. I'm going to move through you. We're going to turn the world upside down. It may cost you your life. And then he starts floating. And not just kind of down on the strip floating about here to do some little magic trick. I'm not talking about some levitation stunt Jesus was pulling here. The Bible says he starts floating and he just goes all the way up through the cloud. He drops it on them. I'm going to move. I'm going to move through you. It's going to change the world. And he's gone. And they're just standing there. Did you? Did you hear what he said? Well, where did he go? He was just right. He, how did he? What? You say, you're making it up. No, look at the next verse. Look at verse 10. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going. Here's what that looks like. And I believe if what happened next hadn't happened, they'd have died standing right there looking into heaven. (laughs) Look what happens next. Then two men in white clothing stood beside them. You get it? Here's what happened. Jesus gets to the right hand of the Father, looks down and sees them all standing there, looks at two angels and says, would you go tell them to move along? (laughs) You say, oh, you're making that up. Look at verse 11. They also said, the two men, men of Galilee, what are you doing standing here looking into the sky? Then look what they said. This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven. And everything changed with this phrase. Will come just as you have watched him go. Here's what he said. You just watched him go through the clouds. Guess what? One day he's coming back through those clouds. And when they heard it, then verse 12 says they ran back to Jerusalem. They ran up into that upper room. They locked the door, all 120 of them together. They'd wrapped their hearts around this idea that God was about to move. And when they got to that upper room, the Bible says they established a committee to plan how God could move in their city. Is that what your Bible says? No, no, no. Mine says they held a think tank to discuss creative ways to promote God's movement in Jerusalem, right? Isn't that what yours says? Oh, no, no, that's right. It says that what they did was when they got back, they did a demographic study of their community so they could understand the felt needs and see if they'd be open to a movement of God in their city, right? Isn't that what yours said they did? No, what they do? They got on their face before God, and they said, Oh, God, we heard what you said. God, we know that you said you're going to move, but, Lord, what you've said you're going to do is so much bigger than us. And, oh, God, if you don't move, we are sunk. They were desperate for God to move, and so that moved them to act in desperation, and they cried out to God for God to move mightily. Let me tell you something I've come to understand that's a spiritual reality that that, that I, I, I can't really explain. But I know it to be true. 
You all right with that? You okay with a little tension? Here's something I know is true, but don't ask me to explain it because I can't. God in His sovereignty has chosen to limit His activity to the prayers of His people. Let that sink in for a minute. God in His sovereign, divine, infinite, all-powerful wisdom has chosen to limit His activity to the desperate cry of His people. Now, don't misunderstand me. God doesn't need us. But in His grace... He has chosen that He will not work around us. He will not work over us. He has chosen by His grace and His sovereignty to work through us. I don't understand that. But it's what you see over and over and over again. Listen. I've studied revival. I've studied great awakenings. You do it yourself. You you read about it. You go research it. You dig deep enough, everywhere you find a great move of God, let me tell you what you find. You find a Jeremiah Lanvier. You find somebody at the bottom of that movement. You may have never heard their name before. Their name may not be in lights. They may not get invited to speak at conferences. They probably hadn't published a bunch of books. But you'll find some believer that is so desperate for God to move that they have begged God for His activity, and God in His active, in His sovereignty has moved through the prayers of those people and done what He's done. Andrew Murray says it a different way. I love the way he says it. Look at this on the screen. Andrew Murray says, God rules the world and His church through the prayers of His people. Now hang on right there before we read any further. I want you to read that first sentence there with me. Let's read it out loud. God rules the world and His church through the prayers of His people. What? Here's the question. Are you an asset or liability to the cause? God rules the world and His church through the prayers of His people. He's chosen to limit his activity to the prayer. He doesn't need us, but in his grace and his infinite wisdom, that's how he set it up. Am I a part of that? Look what Murray goes on to say. That God should have made the extension of his kingdom to such a large extent dependent on the faithfulness of his people in prayer is a stupendous mystery. And yet an absolute certainty. You know what he said? I know it's true. I just don't understand it. God calls for intercessors. In his grace, he has made his work dependent on them. Listen to this. He waits for them. How often in our piety we have sat inside our holy huddles And looked down our spiritual noses at the world. Said, oh God, boy, they need it. I sure wish something would change. Here's what we realize. He's waiting on you and me.
when are we going to get desperate? I mean, just think about just this service tonight. How much time did you spend this week out of a passion for God to move, begging God to change somebody's life here tonight? Or did you just waltz in depending on somebody else to ask God to do that? When we gather, we need to beg God to move. We don't need to take for granted the movement of the Holy Spirit of God. We need to understand that God in His sovereignty has chosen to limit His activity to the prayers of His people. He's waiting on us. And I want to close tonight. I'm out of time. But I want to, I want to just give you some, some characteristics of desperate prayer. I'm just going to mention I'm not going to go deep into them. But let me give you some characteristics of desperate prayer. Number one, desperate prayer is persistent. Did you hear what he said? They continually devoted themselves to prayer. A.T. Robertson, the great Greek scholar, says it's, it's sticking to praying until the answer comes. It's not asking God today and if God doesn't answer tomorrow, oh, well. No. It's grabbing a hold of the throne of God and not letting go until God moves. If that's six days, if that's three months, if that's 20 years, I'm holding on to the throne of God and begging God to move. As you read the book of Acts, there are 26 chapters. 29 times in the book of Acts it talks about the people of God praying. In every chapter, some chapters, twice a chapter. It talks about the people of God praying. Six times throughout the New Testament, twice in the book of Acts, it uses this phrase that they devoted themselves. It means they continuously prayed. It was persistent. Secondly, over in 1 Timothy chapter 2, turn over there, I want to read one verse of Scripture from there. 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul is writing about this idea of desperate prayer. and We don't have time to unpack it, but in this section of Scripture, 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 8, Paul is describing God's activity in the world, that God's on the move, and that God's made a provision in Jesus so that all men could be saved, and that God's sending out missionaries and equipping the church to engage the gospel, engage society with the gospel. But Paul sandwiches verses 2 through 7, this great overview of God's activity in the world with verses 1 and 8, and those two are exhortations to pray. Look at them. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, look what he said. First of all then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men. Then down in verse 8, he says, therefore I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Paul is carrying out this theme of desperate believing prayer. Desperate prayer is not only persistent, desperate prayer is urgent. Hear what Paul said first of all. It's as if Paul said, let's get first things first. You could literally translate it like this. Before anything else. Is there an urgency in your heart to cry out for God to move in our city? Have you thought about this lately? On an annual basis, roughly just over 12,000 people a year die in the city of Las Vegas. The statistic of Las Vegas is that 92% of our population does not know God. They do not have a relationship with Jesus. So here's what that means. In 2014, over 11,000 people went into a Christless eternity from our city. If that doesn't birth a sense of urgency in your heart to get on our face and beg God to move, here's what that means. 11,000 people last year populated hell from our city. Are we begging God to move? Is there a sense of urgency 
Third, desperate prayer is passionate. Paul says, first of all, I urge that these entreaties and prayers and petitions be made. The word urge here is a word that describes passionate calling of somebody. It's, Paul could have come into this church and with his position of authority as apostle said, I command you to pray, but that's not what he did. He wasn't speaking from his position of authority. He was speaking from the passion of his heart. He said, I'm begging you to pray. He said, I understand God's at work in the world, but God's chosen to limit his activity to the prayers of his people. I'm begging you, pray. It's passionate. Fourth, desperate prayer is expectant. He says, first of all, entreaties and prayers, petitions, and thanksgiving. What are we thanking God for? Here's what we're doing. We're thanking God as we cry out in desperation. We're thanking God for what he's going to do. When God first called us to come here to plant this church over 14 years ago, we put together a team, and the three of us guys on that team, the pastors, we, we traveled to some other churches to learn, just learn as much as we could, just to soak as much as we could soak. We did it for about eight months. We just went and visited a lot of churches and learned from leadership. And we were at a church one day and one night in Tampa, Florida, Bell Shoals Baptist Church, really large, wonderful, missions-hearted church. And they were having their missions conference. On this Wednesday night... I'm sitting back over here, and they had a worship pastor named Simeon. And Simeon, he's now in heaven, went to be with the Lord. But he's a big, huge guy, and he had just full of life. And Simeon, at one point in the service, brought about 300 children, three to 400 children up on stage. And here are all these boys and girls dressed up like the nations, and they start singing, Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. And I'm sitting there listening to all these boys and girls sing this song. And and I'm sitting over here, and I just begin to weep. Because I thought about all the boys and girls in Las Vegas that did not know what those kids were singing about. And I was sitting right back over here with tears going down my face in Tampa, Florida. And I just said, God, I thank you right now. That one day, Hope Church will be able to plant the gospel in the next generation and pour the life of Jesus and share that glorious truth with boys and girls who've never heard. Listen, did you know that while we're in here this weekend, that over in that other building, almost 400 children have gathered today and we are now laying the gospel as a foundation on a generation of boys and girls, many of them who've never heard that before in their lives? Paul says desperate prayer is expectant. We're thanking God for what he's going to do. And here's the last one. Desperate prayer is evident in men. Did you hear what Paul said in verse 8? Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray. Now listen to me. That's not a gender neutral word. There are times in the New Testament where man is used for mankind. That's not here. This is a gender-specific talking to the men. Why did Paul single out the men? I think I know why. Because I think the church in Paul's day was a lot like the church in our day. I meet a lot of women that have a hunger for God. A hunger for God to move. But I, I, I meet a lot of women who are prayer warriors. But I don't meet a lot of men like that. Here's what Paul says. When God moves, you'll see a desperation in the men. 
who assume their role and God-given responsibility to lead their families, to have a passion for a move of God and to act on that passion with a desperation where you cry out to God and say, me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Whatever it takes, you see it in the men. Dad, granddad, husband, is that you or are you abdicating that responsibility to somebody else? If we want to see God move, it begins with the men. That's all of us, but Paul singles out the men. So, so here's my closing question to you. Do you have a passion for God to move? Is there a hunger in you to see God move in our lives, in our church, in our city, in our world? And secondly, are are you praying for God to move? Here's what we're about to do. We're about to respond to what we've heard tonight in three ways. One of them is immediate. I'm going to go ahead and invite our worship team to come and our pastors to get here at the front. Let me tell you what we're about to do. We're about to have a moment of worship where we're going to get desperate for God together. Listen, this isn't time to leave early. All the ball games are over, all right? That's done. If you hadn't seen them by now, you've already heard the score. So don't even worry about that. Don't don't worry about that. We're about to get desperate for God together. We're going to open these altars up here at the front. You can come and you can just begin to cry. Listen, for some of us tonight, it may need to start with us repenting before God of not having a passion for God to move and not praying for God to move and just starting right there and saying, God, forgive me. God, forgive me that I've been the obstacle. I've been the one blocking the conduit of your grace in our city. For others, we can come and we can just kneel here and we can pray. You can turn your chair into an altar and you can just kneel there with the people that are with you and you can just begin to pray right there where you are. We can stand together in a moment. We're going to worship with a song that's just crying out to God in desperation for Him to move. If you're here tonight and you don't know Jesus, we're going to have pastors here at the front. You can come take one of us by the hand and say, I need Jesus. And we'll have somebody sit down with you and show you from the Bible how you can begin tonight a personal relationship with the God of heaven. You can be forgiven of your sin and leave here a glorious child of God. going to worship and we're going to get desperate right now but we're going to do second thing mark this down on your calendar Tuesday night January the 27th we'll get you the time probably around 6.30 we're going to have our first night of prayer we're going to do five of them this year four or five this year next one's going to be in March we're going to gather here on Tuesday night to do one thing to pray to worship and to pray that's it I don't care if it's five of us 50 of us 500 of us Jeremiah Lamphere started by himself if it's just me and Teddy We're going to be here Tuesday night, January 27th. Amen. We're going to pray. We're going to ask God to move. We're going to pray for churches in this valley. We're going to ask God to move in this city. We're going to pray over the names of lost people. We're going to pray over our city and ask God to do something that is unexplainable and undeniable, except that the Spirit of God has moved here in our city. We're going to ask God to move. So mark that down on your calendar. Then on Wednesday morning, February the 4th, this is to all the men. We're going to have our first gathering of the men of hope, 6.30 or 6, I don't know the time, we'll get you the time, something in the morning, a.m. The other one's at night, this one's in the morning. We're going to begin to gather monthly on the 
first Wednesday morning of the month as men, men in small groups coming together to connect, to pray, to sit under the Word, and to connect with other guys that aren't in groups. Why are we doing that? Because Paul said when God moves, the men show up. We're going to start meeting together. Why are we doing this? Here's what we're doing. We're putting the sail up. And if God, by His Holy Spirit's power, chooses to blow through our city, we want to be ready for God to move.